You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he don't care about history because that's not where he want to be. Well, wait, <laughs> it's wait, Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Like, we do a history podcast. Of course it's where I want to be. At least it, it was. That's okay. There was one time whenever I introduced you as pleased to meet you. He hopes you guesses his name. And then I gave your name. Yes, uh, there's not much guessing needed if you do that. Yes, it's true. Yeah. What's going on, Jeff? I know the answer to this question. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm soliciting donations from our listeners. I know there's a there's approximately three of us, you, me, and and my mom who listen to this podcast, and, and my uh, brother, my brother. Listens, oh, your brother, so, four so of us. Four. See that yeah. we've gone up twenty five percent just in the last minute. And yeah. what I'm doing is I'm soliciting another human body to transplant my brain into. And the reason I'm <laughs> doing that is because, uh, as the world knows, we record this show weeks back from when you actually hear the, the thing. So it's yes. early January as we're recording this, which is also the beginning of my favorite time of the year as a gym nerd, which is yeah. watch people cripple themselves at the gym because they've never been <laughs> to the gym before holiday season. And it starts January yes. 1st and it ends sometimes as early as January 10th, sometimes as early as February 1st, occasionally February 14th or so. And then it, the gym goes back to normal and all the regulars are there. And none of the people yeah. who started on January 1st are there. This year, however. Yeah, there'll be, yeah, there'll be like one or two. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, yes. Go and, ahead. It, and like the the sort of fake festival of, of NaNoWriMo. Do you know what NaNoWriMo is, Bill? No. NaNoWriMo is the acronym for National Novel Writing Month. It's something that takes place that writers do sometimes in November. Oh. Uh, Sounds like a sizzler, Jeff. It is. Jan- <laughs> January 1st to February 1st is National Lactic Acid Buildup Month, um, <laughs> in which people go to the gym, lift way too much weight because they don't know any better, yep. nearly kill themselves, and then walk around like the Tin Man at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz for the next three days, eating Tylenol-like Skittles. <laughs> it's my favorite time of the year. And this year, I'm participating in that because for the month and a half or so before the holidays, I was sick. I went from oh, COVID right, to yeah. cold to cold to cold to cold and didn't go to the gym to the gym to the gym because I didn't want to make the other gym nerds sick. Right. So I went back for the first time two days ago. And if you're anything like me, like I'll be sick and I'll feel fine, you know, enough to like get on with my day and go back to work and stuff like that. But to go back to the gym takes a little bit longer to get all my energy and strength back. Yeah. And, you know, I do like a re- relatively robust routine. So it, once you stop going for five, four or five weeks, if you fall right off. So I went back yep. yeah, two days ago and okay. reduced the weight and did my routine and felt really good until yesterday when I couldn't get out of bed without assistance. And then it's even <laughs> worse today where literally it hurts to blink. So 
Yep. Stretching so is important. It's stre- I don't even know what stretches I could do that would help. So I need to be yeah, I need well, to be put in like a, a medieval torture rack and just have no, them crank the, the handle. No, no we're, we're talking about stretching before and immediately after. You know, not closing the barn doors once all the horses. Oh, are. I'll have to try that sometime. <laughs> With me, it's not so much uh, like you just had over the past uh, you know five six weeks. With me was with September mm. because my schedule is way too you know crowded. Yes. During September and October that I can't get to the gym. I'm, uh, if I do have the time, I'm too tired to do anything. So there's usually like five weeks where I barely even touch the place. Right. And then this year, you know, there was the holidays, there was trips and all that. I did not have a real good solid routine of going to the gym. But now, New Year, uh, you know, New Year's resolution kind of deal. So as of this recording, which is realistically only a few days... But my new schedule is five or six days a week, an hour and a half each day. Oh, So, yeah, whenever I'm done with my weights, I set a timer. Whatever timer's left over, if it's half an hour or five minutes, it doesn't matter. I'm doing an hour and a half, and whatever time's left over, I'm on a treadmill. Oof. Well, props to you. Yeah. I, can't, I can't go back five days a week, or I'm pretty sure I'd be dead. But I, I do three days a week. And the other part of, of the beauty of the first month of the year at the gym is – we get to talk again about the fun and excitement of watching people learn how to go to the gym, not ne- not necessarily just to lift weights, but how to like, you know, leave their underwear hanging on the hook next to the shower, <laughs> or or walk out of the yeah. locker room with no clothes on because they don't know any better, you know. There was one kid at my old gym who ultimately ended up having his membership revoked because he just assumed that the rules did not apply to him, I guess. Oh. And he was always working out with his shoes off. Oh. He would take his shoes off and walk around in stocking feet. And this was pre-COVID, but that, that is still really gross. Yeah. It's like, what planet are you know are you from that where that is not disgusting? Well, Why are you doing that? That too, and like I, I mean, I realize it's generally more confined to the locker room and showers. But like, why would you want to carry what will become clearly nuclear weapons grade athlete's foot fungus out into the general gym floor? Or pick up, you know, on your, you know, walking around. It's not just gross for us; it's gross for right. you. You know, I mean, not like sneakers are going to offer much protection in the way of oh, I dropped a dumbbell on my foot, but it's a lot more than not having sneakers on. Right. You know? I don't know. To me, that's, you're, you're, it's insane on every level. I agree. So. All right. But before we get into the show proper, I do, as always, Jeff, have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Okay. Hey, Jeff. Uh-oh. All right. Lay it on me. All right. I'm ready. Cut and dry this week. I'm trying to get this as easy as possible so there's not a million qualifying questions. Ready? All right. What country has the largest amount of fresh water? Okay. The end of the show, I will ask clarifying questions. Ah, I I can't (laughs) even imagine what your questions are going to be. All right. But this is the week beginning February the 13th. And if I am not mistaken, it is your turn to start. Oh, it is, in fact, my turn to start. Uh, February 13th, 1971. In our continuing attempt to rehabilitate... The reputation of President Richard Nixon, U.S. Vice President Spiro Agnew, 
Vice what? President to Richard Nixon, hits two tee shots into the crowd while golfing at the Bob Hope Desert Classic and injures two people. Actually, it was three. It was two balls but three people because that's the way Spiro Agnew works. On the right. first drive, he sliced and hit a man and his wife with the same ball. <laughs> oh, um, geez. Yep. And then on the very next shot, on the very next shot, he shot into the gallery again, striking a woman in the ankle and sending her into the hospital for x-rays. Nice. Imagine that. There's that little ball on the side of your ankle that's like roughly the size of a golf ball. Yeah. Imagine if like you sink my battleship, just hit that like right there. Oh, I'm sure the first thought was like, because, you know, it's going to take a minute for the pain to really like radiate all the way up to your brain. And then like when you stub your toe, I'm sure the yeah, yeah, first, yeah. first thought was like, oh, and I voted for you guys. <laughs> I'll give you 50 bucks if you never hit me again. <laughs> What's even more hilarious. Okay. This isn't really rehabilitating Nixon's career. It's just showing how bad Agnew was in contrast. Um, right. Because... A year earlier, in the same tournament, in the Bob Hope Desert Classic, he hit his teammate, Doug Sanders, in the back of the head. You think he'd stop getting invited to that tournament at that yeah, point? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's an insurance liability at that point. Oh, sorry. Yep. For a golfer, he's a hell of a bowler. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. Why don't you play something that's a little safer for the people around you, like ping pong? Or... That's, uh, that's foreshadowing, kids. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> it's pretty funny whenever... Being vice president is the second worst thing that Agnew was that good at. Right. First thing he was extra good at was taking money. Mm. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the 14th. Hey, for a show that shies away from politics, we have our, our second, I don't know if you want to call it political, but it mm. is it is a historic moment in American politics. Yes. So February the 14th, 1899, the U.S. Congress, 1899, Jeff, the U.S. Congress approves the use of voting machines in federal elections. Oh, that, that'll make things easier. Yeah, and then Mike Lindell's great-grandfather has a <laughs> brain hemorrhage at the very thought of it. <laughs> there gotta be voting machines! <laughs> <laughs> these need to be counted by hand. Yeah, I don't think these voting machines, well, one, they're not like the ones that we have now. There wasn't like running electricity at that point in time. Right. And two, these voting machines, there was nothing controversial about these. Well, right. I mean, you can make an argument there should be anything controversial in the first place. But these voting machines are not like what we think of. Like, they're, you described it to me because I'd never seen these. Yeah. So these but were. You said you had. I had, yeah. Well, I don't know if I'd seen ones from, you know, 1899, but I've used the mechanical lever action voting machines the very first time I voted in 1988. And yep. what you would do is pull a curtain close behind you and there's push a bunch of plastic or Bakelite tabs on this yep. board to select who you're going to vote for. And then you pull a lever down and that lever goes ka-chunk and it punches holes in the ballot for you. And then it slides it into some part of the machine where it, it, you can't ever see it. So oh. you make all your selections and then you, you clunk the ballot in and then you the curtain opens and you leave. And that's how you vote. And then somebody takes the box of ballots out and they go through and they count them all based on the holes that are punched in them. That's how they right. worked in 88. And it's probably this a very similar process by which the machines worked in 1899 as well. As a way to do things like, you know, prevent ballot box stuffing and reduce the potential where somebody comes in and tries to copy a ballot or bring in fake ballots of their own to, to write on or whatever. Because right. 
this is a way for them to sort of lock down the process. The, uh, the one that you're describing, now that you're describing it, uh, the mental picture I'm getting is from the Saturday morning inter-cartoon Schoolhouse Rock. Yes. Whenever they were depicting voting, that's the kind that they were showing with the ones yes. with the little flip levers and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Nope. Only kind of voting I've ever had is kind of like the, uh, you know, the fill in the circle, number two pencil. Although there was one kind, I remember I had to like complete an arrow and that ended up like confusing a lot of people. So they don't do it like that anymore. No, I, I did it with the voting machines once or twice when I, you know, in my hometown when I first started voting. And yep. then uh, ever since I became an adult here and moved to New Hampshire, they've had the Scantron machines where you fill in with a Sharpie or a spe- particular kind yeah. of black magic marker. And then they go in, into a reader and then in, into the lockbox. All right. So let's go on to the 15th. February 15th. 399 BC, Bill. First, there was video games. Then there was heavy metal music. And then there was comic books and R-rated movies. And all the way back in 399 BC, Socrates himself is sentenced to death by the city of Athens for corrupting the minds of the youth. So he's the precursor to all of those things. And helping teenagers cheat on their final exam. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I cannot say his name correctly because half of my brain wants to say Socrates, like in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Mm -hmm. And then also in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, he says his name as Socrates. Yes. Um, But uh, Socrates, as we know him, early philosopher, and like you said, corrupted the the minds of the youth. We think of that as like a new thing. You and I, Generation X, we right. grew up with the satanic panic in the yep. 1980s. Yeah, we think that phenomenon is our generation, or at least our parents' generation's invention of stupid. But it's not. It goes all the way back to, what'd you say, three what? 399 BC. I yeah. bet if you were to go back even further and you go back to like the Mesopotamian era or you know, a little bit after that and like the first dynasty, there are hieroglyphics that parents were complaining about. Like, my God, you've got a picture of Anubis right there on the wall. <laughs> Kids are going to see that, you know, or yep. cuneiform. Now what? You know, you can write anything with these like little blur- blurps and dots in a piece of clay. So I was listening to a, a podcast today and they were talking about whenever television first came out. Everybody thought that that was going to, you know, melt the minds of people because people weren't going to be reading as many books. Yeah, idiot box. Yeah, the the boob tube. Why, Johnny can't uh, read. Exactly. And then, like, now, you know, with the internet and kids staring into their phones all the time, people are longing for the days where people were glued to their televisions instead. I don't know. Eventually, people, you would think would age out of that kind of like stupidity and say, no, this is just the natural progress of things. It is every generation's responsibility to piss off the generation before. (laughs) Cue Mod Flanders. Won't somebody please think of the children? The sooner people understand that as an adult, the better they're going to get, you know, uh, get along with their life. Otherwise, they're going to be glued to pick your political podcast or television right. show you know i don't want to lean either right or left because nope. there's equally angry people on both sides kids these days with their crazy pinball machines and their rock and roll music right the guns and roses videos what was the book the seduction of the innocent right by frederick wortham which was the uh the the paper that was the tied juvenile delinquency to comic book reading and and how oh, right. how little things have changed yeah Right. I for, yeah, I, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, they thought that comic books were going to corrupt the youth. Well, Socrates didn't come out on the good end like the rest of the guys. He took his poison and sort of went off, and that was the end of that. But, courtesy of 
Plato, his legacy lives on. All right, so moving on, just a mere thousand years later. Only. In 600 CE, Pope Gregory decrees. Known as Greg to his friends. And great, he was Pope Gregory the Great. He was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, he was all right. So anyway, Pope Gregory the Great uh, decrees that saying, God bless you, is the correct response to a sneeze. I wonder what people were saying before that. We should speculate, Bill. I'm going to... Could you? Okay. What do you say? No. I just sneezed. I don't... That's the thing. I don't say anything. Oh. When people sneeze, I don't say anything. What, you just stare at them? And... Yeah, it's 2023, dude. That, that is such an archaic superstition, you know? It'd be like walking down the street and stepping on a crack and, like, thinking, oh, I got to go home and check on my mom. She might be a cripple because of my haphazard stepping. You don't do that? You no, know, it's... <laughs> so, no, so when people sneeze, I don't say, God bless you. I don't say, bless you. I don't say, gesundheit. I don't say anything. You wow. sneeze. You know, if they didn't cover their mouth, I'll say something like, hey, you mind? But no, I don't say anything. Matter of fact, if I sneeze and someone says, you know, bless you, God bless you, because I go to hell, whatever, I'm like, okay, dude, I just sneeze. You know, whatever. Leave me alone. I can't help it. I'm allergic yeah. to you. Go away. <laughs> well, I, I still say Gesundheit, which is German for good health, because... I don't know. I've always said it. I never really thought to question whether or not you should. Does that That's what Gesundheit translates to, good health? Yeah, good health. Yeah, so the superstition, I guess, is people thought that the soul was leaving their body. And if you you know if you didn't say God bless you, you know, the, you have a chance of losing your soul. Well, I'm pretty sure which, that if, if Gregory had seen me sneeze through my nose, he would think that my soul was made up of, like, ectoplasm. My God, my mother, my mother, whenever she sneezed... I thought sure my father was murdering her. Like, no no hyperbole, dude. This is how my mother sneezed, right? Here's, here's her, my impression of Adrian with one L sneezing. Uh-huh. Ready? Yeah! That's how she sneezed. It was just like this, like, scream. Just, just like, yeah, this primal yell. Like, are you all right? Yeah, I sneezed. Why? I don't, I don't know. know. Your, thought... your teeth just bounced off the back of my head. Yeah. I thought Pa was hitting you. Jesus. <laughs> Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller, again, for foreshadowing. Penn Jillette, whenever somebody sneezes, uh, he and his family say, that's funny. And it kind of is. <laughs> mm, I guess. Sneezing's kind of funny. So if someone sneezes, they say, that's funny. Uh, and the joke I used to make is, if God bless you did anything, then heaven would, <laughs> heaven would be full of people with bad allergies. I was going to say, people allergic to cats. I'm going to be the only atheist in heaven. I'm going to be the one that sneezes his way through a loophole. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on to the 17th. February 17th, again, in an attempt to rehabilitate the reputation of former President Richard Nixon. February 17th, 1972, Nixon leaves Washington, D.C. for a groundbreaking trip to China, which is the first time an American president had been to China, I think, ever. And it was certainly the first time that an American president had ever been to communist China. He actually met with Mao Zedong. And went to Beijing in the Forbidden City and started to establish the trade ties that started to change the way that the world marketplace worked with regard to China as far as a country that purchased goods and or sold goods and labor. It was also yeah. one year Tons after of change, Spiro- huh? <laughs> I was gonna say it's also one year after Spiro Agnew's attempted murder of three people at the Bob Hope Golf <laughs> Classic. So I'm right. sure Nixon was, was trying to trying to get out of town before that happened. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and he hit that other guy in the head the year before that. He's right? like, oh, I'm not going to stick around for this madman. Right. So Spiro with his nine iron, he's like, no, oh, that's it. Get me on the Air Force <laughs> One. Take me anywhere. Well, take me somewhere you're where I'm waiting. Him. You're not going to have Nixon to kick around or hit the head with <laughs> a golf ball. I'm going out for Chinese. <laughs> uh, let's go on to the 18th. February the 18th, 1977, just three short years to the day after their debut album came out, the rock band Kiss headlines three consecutive nights at Madison Square Garden. Nice. And that, I mean, it's not like Madison Square Garden is a small venue. That's a big no, ass venue. No, it's not. It's right? a big one, yeah. It's got a capacity of 20,000 people. Yeah, that's so pretty big. To sell it out three nights in a row, I mean, that's a, that's a huge deal. There's a lot of prestige in playing there, too. It's, it's like the most famous venue in New York City right. for big events. It's, it's way bigger than Carnegie Hall, for example, and it's been around for a long time. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, they're a New York band, so it's a big deal to play there. There might have been bigger venues that they played leading up to that, but not none that are were that as exciting, I think. Yeah, that was, yeah, it's like a big homecoming for them. Right. It, I've read all four of their autobiographies. And that particular series of concerts, that was like the biggest deal for them, especially just three years after their debut. You know, the music industry is way different now. Well, it was way different 10 years ago than it is now, but certainly way different from 1977 to now. So to come out with your debut album and like, you know, Kiss for their first three albums, they could barely get themselves arrested. Yeah. So to go from relative obscurity to selling out Madison Square Garden in three years, that's a lot. I mean, they worked for it, that's for sure. It's not like it was handed to them. Nope, it's true. A lot of the momentum they got came from Destroyer and the Kiss Alive and Kiss Alive 2 records, too. Yeah, well, this was prior to Kiss Alive 2, some yeah. of Kiss Alive 2. This was on the Rock and Roll Over tour. Okay. So this is right in between Kiss Alive and Kiss Alive 2, like right in the middle. Right. Yeah, perfect and place for it. Probably Kiss at their absolute best. Yes. You know, I mean, some of the Fishers were already starting to show behind the scenes, but this was prior to like Kiss Me the Phantom of the Park. <laughs> this is prior to the, you know, yes. the disco era. Right. This is prior to the Kiss color form set. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Kiss comic book with the blood in it. Yeah. Right? This yeah. was right before all of that hit all of that fan. Right. So this is probably like, yeah, Kiss at their absolute best. Right. As a rock band. Less so as a beacon of industry, which is what they kind of became. Right, yeah. They they certainly went on to that. They did. All right, and then let's wrap up the week. All right. February 19th, 1985. Trying to find a way to do something with all this syrup for the new Coke, Coca-Cola introduces canned and bottled versions of Cherry Coke for the first time. Mmm. I loved Cherry Coke. Loved it. I still love Cherry Coke. If I go to get a soda, you know, a bottle of soda, which I don't really drink all that often, Mm -hmm. I don't go looking for Cherry Coke, but if Cherry Coke is right in the front, I'm like, ooh, and I always get Cherry Coke. I make that same noise if I see it. Again, if it's right, I don't drink a lot of bottled soda either because I can't spend $2.50 on 20 ounces of soda. I just, I can't do it. I can't do it, Bill. Can't do it. However, if I find Cherry Coke at the front of the cooler, chances are I'm going to buy that if I do buy a soda. It's super delicious. It makes my teeth feel like I've been patting the glue from envelopes all over them for 40 hours in a row. But it's (laughs) totally worth it. And my burps smell like cherry. (laughs) The only time I really drink soda is when I go out to eat. Yeah. You know? But like the bottled soda, like I just mentioned, during September, 
it's usually like midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and I have an hour drive home. Right. So I need a little shot of caffeine. So that's usually I stop off at a Seven Eleven, and the guy over there loves me because I'm always covered in you know some yeah. sort of grease paint. Right. And he's like, you, "You have fun. You have a fun night tonight." I'm like, "We're making money, dude." Yeah. So I'll I'll generally that's when I get like my cherry coke, and uh, more times than not, that's what I get. Know what I like too is vanilla coke. You ever get the vanilla coke, Jeff? Yes, we've talked about this. Vanilla coke is it's my favorite of all the yep. flavored cokes. But again, it have that you thing had, to, have you ever had cherry vanilla coke though? I have. Yep. I don't like it as much. Oh. I, I see. I like the cherry in isolation. There's something about that. I don't love cherries, but I really like it mixed with Coca-Cola syrup. I don't know. It's the weirdest thing. That's because cherry syrup doesn't taste anything like cherries. <laughs> it's true. It has a a very distinctive taste. It's like the blue flavor of icy. I don't know what this is <laughs> supposed to be, but it's blue and it tastes blue. All right. Moving on to the celebrity birthdays. February the 13th, 1950. Listen to me, Jeff. I get to use one of your words. Ready? Okay. <clears throat> Erstwhile singer of the band Genesis, Peter Gabriel. Well, early Genesis. He was also a monkey shocker later in his life. Yeah, Peter Gabriel was the original singer for Genesis prior to what most people know about in right. Genesis. Uh, they were a really avant-garde kind of prog rock band. There was a lot of theatrics in their stage shows. Peter Gabriel yes. used to wear like makeup and costumes and stuff like that. Yep. That's one of those deals where when he left the band, it worked out better for everybody involved. Yeah, I agree. Yep. I agree. Uh, Peter Gabriel, uh, he had a great solo career. Genesis did fantastic without Peter Gabriel. Yes. Initially, I think he was a little bit, his breakaway, what was it, Salisbury Hill, right? That was the first single he did as a solo artist. Um, uh, yeah, either that or Games Without Frontiers. No, I'm that was really early, sure it too. Was, I'm pretty sure it was Salisbury Hill was the first one, because that's about leaving the band. That's about leaving Genesis. Okay. It was like, oh, it's so different. It's so much lighter than you know anything from The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Um, and then Genesis didn't really know how to catch up it took a couple of records before they started to really find what sound they would have that would carry them into sort of worldwide stardom yeah but Peter Gabriel's first four solo albums there's like one song that you know off of it and then the rest of it's like really avant-garde yes kind of stuff like uh, and they're all named Peter Gabriel (laughs) Yeah, here in the States, uh, they, they had to give him names. The record company made him put a name on him. So, like, so yeah. is the fifth record, because Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, fifth note right. scale. That was the one that really, he had been around as a solo artist for years. Yeah. But So was the one that really, really, really made him a superstar with all of his uh, very innovative uh, videos. visual, visually stunning videos. Yeah. He got a little bit of traction from the previous record with Shock the Monkey. That was in heavy rotation yeah. for a, a half a year or so. That was a visually arresting f- video, too. It was unusual. It was way more mm-hmm. like you imagine Peter Gabriel in makeup and costumes and stuff, and that had it all. And yep. then when So came out, there were a bunch of singles that came off of that record that were really popular. Right. Unlike the album before with Shock the Monkey, which is like the only listenable song on that album. If you disagree <laughs> with me, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, write me a letter. Nah, <laughs> write us both a letter. There was a, the, the only song I remember from that record is The Family in the Fishing Net. And a lot of his songs are like that, and it's not the most catchy of songs. All right, moving on to the 14th. February 14th, 1948, the quieter half of the act Penn and Teller, Teller, or Raymond Joseph Teller, was a magician and an illusionist. He was born in Philadelphia. Teller is uh, several things that you would not, or maybe you would not 
uh, imagine him to be. Mm-hmm. One, he's super smart. That yes. guy's amazingly smart. He has written several articles for the Smithsonian Magazine. And two, even though he's silent on stage, he talks fine. And he also takes no shit. I got to see this firsthand because Penn and Teller, after all of their shows, always do a meet and greet afterwards, right? Right, right, right. And they, you know, they do autographs and all that. So I go over and my brother and his uh, soon-to-be wife were getting married like the next day. And mm-hmm. we had all gone to see Penn and Teller the day before. And so I hand him my ticket. I was introducing myself and my brother and sister-in-law. And as I'm saying that, somebody says to Teller... Um, excuse me, I think I was first. Teller turns around sharply, looks the woman dead in the eyes and says, I'll decide who's first. <laughs> and then turns around back to me with a big smile and like gestures, please continue. You right. know? Yes. So yeah, the guy takes no shit. <laughs> well, that's cool. I like, I, I like that he's able to sort of maintain the character, but immediately turn it off as soon as he's off stage. That's... It's a skill that many famous people seem to struggle with. Mm. Do you know why he doesn't talk on stage? Nope. Oh, here's a fun story. So whenever he first started out doing magic, he would perform at like, you know, dorm parties or college, you know, parties and stuff like that. Yep. He found that the more he talked, the more people heckled. So he did his shows completely silent and nobody heckled. Oh, huh. So Smart. it's always been silent on stage because it stops people from heckling. It shuts the audience up. Smart. Smart. Yeah. Good thinking. And you'd have to be out of your mind to start heckling Ben, who's right. like six seven. Yeah. Right. Yes. It looks like it could pick you up and hurl you like Chewbacca with a stormtrooper. <laughs> That's another thing, too, about Teller is he's not short. He's taller than I am. Yeah. He's like 5'10". Yeah, it's, it's all relative. Ben is yeah. freakishly he's big. It's just, right. yeah. He's just standing next to a guy that's like Andre the Giant. Yeah, even the rock yeah. looks small next to Andre the Giant, yeah. All right, moving on to the 15th, February the 15th, 1964. American comedian and SNL alumni, Chris Farley. He lives in a van down by the river. Yes, he does. I feel like does. I'm obligated to say that whenever we mention Chris yeah. Farley. Chris Farley, you know, taken from us too soon. He probably could have had a much uh, longer and lengthier and successful career in front of him, but unfortunately, he passed away young. How are you on Chris Farley? Uh, well, I'm putting your positivity to the test here because yeah. I know you're not a fan. Um, I I liked that at, at, later in his career he was starting to branch out and do different types of films. So it's still not a great movie, but Beverly Hills Ninja is a better movie than anything that he did with like David Spade. I don't really. Love those. But like I didn't see Beverly Hills Ninja. It's not it's not a good movie. It, but it takes way more chances with storytelling and making a character out of Chris Farley than those movies do. It gives him an opportunity to act a little bit. I was liking the direction that he was going and I wanted to see him grow into somebody sort of the way Jack Black's career did. I don't love Jack Black either, but I like some of the films that he's been in quite a bit. He was working his way there and then you know, substance abuse, etc. Fat guy on Saturday Night Live and the yeah, curse. Then here we are talking about him in the post. Post-haste. See, I like the movies that he did with David Spade simply because I found it like an enjoyable throwback to those kind of like buddy movies like Abbott and Costello. Mm-hmm. Those movies, Tommy Boy and Black Sheep, could very easily have been Abbott and Costello movies. Yeah, I didn't find them as funny as as you did. I think they're perfectly serviceable comedies for 
yeah. type of comedy that they that those guys do. But I think that stuff that showcased his ability to show pathos and a little bit more uh, emotion made him a funnier actor and made for the material to be more interesting. But again, that's neither that's not a criticism of him as a person or good or bad or either. Here's the thing. Those movies I find funny not because of Chris Farley. It's because David Spade. Yeah, he's uh, a straight man. Because, yeah, I've always been a bigger Bud Abbott than Lucas Costello fan mm. anyway. I, I, I do like the straight man. My friend Elizabeth used to hate Chris Farley, and she had the funniest thing. She said, he's fat, he sweats, and he falls down a lot. My uncle does all that <laughs> stuff, and he's not funny either. <laughs> well, that's pretty funny. All right, moving on to the 16th. February 16th, 1959, the man who added lack of civility to world-class tennis, John McEnroe. <laughs> I don't know if he was the first guy to argue with the judge, the line judges, but he was the guy that was on TV doing it. You would watch tennis for John McEnroe the same way that you watch NASCAR for the Rex. Right. You know, you just wanted to see McEnroe just absolutely lose his mind yeah. yelling at the judges. Yeah, I don't know that that made him a better or worse tennis player or ranked him differently. I'm not a tennis fan. Generally, when I saw, oh, of the three channels that I have, one of them is showing Wimbledon. Well, I guess I'm going outside or I'm going to read a book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it didn't matter who was playing. I, I don't think I've ever watched him play, but I've seen clips of him like being a jerk. Tennis is an amazingly athletic game. It's weird that it's got this like kind of lesser athletic reputation. Right. But I don't know if you've ever tried to play tennis. It's tough. It's a lot of work. Yeah, I've, I've played it here and there. It's fun. And, I, you know, I'm not pushing down the athleticism. I mean, I've seen Serena Williams and Venus Williams, and they're both astonishingly fit tennis mm-hmm. players who look like they could bench press a Volkswagen and then throw it like a tennis ball. And I know how hard playing for a long time is, especially at the intensity level that tennis is played for. I just... I don't find the game interesting. It's like Pong. It's fun for the first five minutes, and then it's like, put the controllers down and go read a book. So <laughs> so moving on to the 17th, somebody who is not a fit and athletic individual. <laughs> <laughs> February the 17th, 1963, American comedian Larry the Cable Guy. Ah, he's now, a- here's, here's me being Mr. Positive, or trying to be Mr. Positive, because Daniel Lawrence Whitney, which is Larry's real name, mm-hmm. I don't find him particularly funny. His uh, that, uh, that sort of style of playing to a really particular type of audience, yep. I find hard to enjoy as someone who likes stand-up comedians. But some of the bits that he does are funny. I like when he does things that are out of the ordinary. Again, like Chris Farley, he was really funny as Tomater, the tow truck in Cars, and the subsequent sequels. Yep. But if he's given something good to work with, he's not bad. If he's given something terrible to work with, like <laughs> Tooth Fairy 2... Uh, right. Less so. They gave him his own vehicle, not cars. Um, <laughs> they gave him his own movie vehicle, I guess you could say. Larry the Cable Guy Health Inspector. And that didn't do well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm looking I can at, imagine the script for that. Whatever that was. Could, who read that and thought that was a good idea? I think they probably just like wrote out on like a big blank sheet of paper, get her done about five or six times. And then just like, all right, fill in the rest. All right, scene two, exterior. This inexpensive <laughs> restaurant. Inside, Larry the Cable Guy complains that there's no plastic bag over the ice scoop in the ice machine. Hilarity ensues. <laughs> Moving on to the 18th. February 18th, 1950, American actress Sybil Shepard, who transitioned from being a film actress 
to being a really popular television actress in the 1980s. Uh, as we were discussing whether to include her on this list, I said, geez, you know, I can't remember what she was on except for Moonlighting with Bruce Willis. And, and Bill reminded me that she was the love interest of Travis Pickle in Taxi Driver. The, tra- the love yes. interest who wasn't a teenage prostitute and was, in fact, the uh, woman who worked mayor- mayoral or governor campaign and then took her to a porno theater for their first date. Yeah. Unlike my co-host who took a girl to see Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer for a first date. Not to bet. It wasn't a first date. It was the last date. <sighs> <laughs> So, uh, Sybil Shepard in the 80s, I had a real big crush on her. Um, She's a beautiful, beautiful woman. I used to love the show Moonlighting. And also, I liked that she was like super, not super, but she was kind of iconoclastic and quirky. Mm -hmm. Like she kind of had her, like she was in the system, but she had her middle finger up to the system as well. I remember her showing up to a red carpet event in a very nice dress and orange sneakers. Yeah, she was an odd duck for that kind of yeah. that kind of like outside of the roles element to her career. Yep. I remember that aspect of her as well. Hmm. She's still fairly active. Uh, yep. Not super active, but fairly active. She does like she'll do some like guest spots on some episodes of TV shows like My Dad Says Okay. Um, she was on Psych for like five or six episodes. Oh. Of course, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit. I don't think uh. you can. I, don't I think, think everybody. I think I was on that show without doing one. Yeah. And yeah, she's still active up until like her, like her most recent is uh, a TV series called Guilty Party in 2021. So yeah. Oh. Awesome. She's well, still at it. Keep on working there, Sybil. Yep. And looking at a semi-recent picture of her. Still gorgeous. Still a gorgeous woman. All right, and wrapping up the birthdays, February the 19th, 1955, American actor Jeff Daniels, probably Ah. best known for something other than Dumb and Dumber. I can't think of anything he did besides Dumb and Dumber, (laughs) but I know he's done a lot. Yeah, he was Harry in in Dumb and Dumber, the guy who shampooed dogs and then drove them around with food (laughs) in the beginning, the (laughs) dog-shaped van, which I always wanted. Yep. Like, we were just talking about, you know, Chris Farley and David Spade, you know, doing, like, the buddy movies where, yes. you know, one's a straight man and one's the foil. Right. But they were both foils, and it somehow worked out perfectly. Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey were both the stooge yeah, in that fu- movie. Like, n- n- no one took the other one's shit kind of thing. Funny story about him being in that film was... He brought the script to his agent, and his agent said, absolutely not. You cannot do this film. And up to that point, he had done, like, serious film, serious drama. He worked with Woody Allen in The Purple Rose of Cairo and had a reputation as what was a guy who was going to be, like, a prestige actor. And he said, the script is so funny. I have to do this. And his agent said, you can't. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to do it anyway. And he did it anyway. And that really catapulted him into the public fame was doing Dumb and Dumber because way more people saw – Dumb and Dumber then saw the Purple Rose of Cairo. Sure. He went on to do like stuff that was more dramatic. He would, They made the, the TV show The Newsroom around him. He was really great as the villain in Looper and oh, yeah. has done all kinds of different parts. Honestly, I'm looking through his, his IMDb right now, and every movie that I've seen that he's in it, I don't remember him being in it. He was in The Martian. I saw that. Yep. And I think one of my friends said, hey, that's the guy from Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and you know what I remember is I went to see Dumb and Dumber in the theater with my friend Dale. Yes. And whenever Harry went out on the date with Lauren Hawley and 
He gets into like a snowball fight with her. <laughs> yeah, and he packs and he just, the like, snowball peg- wicked tight. Yeah, he like pegs her in the face with it. I really <laughs> thought Dale was just gonna miss the rest of the movie because he couldn't stop laughing. That that scene uh, nearly destroyed me as well. Actually, I think I saw that movie at this, this, with the same girl that I also took to see Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and I remember <laughs> laughing like to the point where I was delirious and I missed ten minutes of the movie because that was so funny. And then I remember you and I went to see Dumb and Dumber Two. And yes. even though it's, you know, it's a lesser of the two movies, it is still very, very, very funny. So much so that I don't remember much of it because we were remember. laughing our asses off too much. Yeah, I, I don't remember anything except for them trying to answer the phone and not being able to answer the phone because it was their own phone ringing and they kept calling one another <laughs> in front of the daughter. That's literally the only part of that movie that I remember. But uh-huh. he's a funny guy and his films are really good generally. There was another Dumb and Dumber sequel called When Harry Met Lloyd that Jeff Daniels wasn't in. Yes. And as far as sequels go, that was like... The worst song ever. Uh, Jeff, I brought up uh, songs not similar to this, but you'll know what I mean when I say similar to this. Okay. That, you know, there was a song by Pink Floyd called Learning to Fly. Yes. That did very well. And then, I don't want to say the guy's name because he's persona non grata now, but he had a song called I Believe I Can Fly that that did very well. And then there was that other song there that Lenny Kravitz had there. Right. I Want to Fly Away. And all those songs do very well because people are like, you know, they latch onto it like, oh, I want to fly. I want to fly. I like that song because I want to fly. And then that other song that we covered on Worst Song Ever, some, you know, last season or the, or the year before, somebody that I used to know there by Goatsy. Yes. You know, no, not, not Goatsy. Not Goatsy. <laughs> Got- it may as well be Goatsy and you know it. <laughs> not Goatsy. Do not Google that. Gotye. G-O-T-Y-E. <laughs> You're better off Googling Goatsy no. than listening to that no, song. No, And then anyway... Um, and people are like, hey, I got somebody that I used to know. They latch on to that. Right. So this song that we're talking about today was insanely popular for the time that it was around. And we're talking about Daniel Powder's One Hit Wonder, Had a Bad Day. Because you had a bad day. You take your one down. You sing a sad song just to turn it around. You say you don't know. You tell me don't lie. You work at a smile and you go for a ride You had a bad day, the camera don't lie You come the back down and you really don't mind You had a bad day You had a bad day God, this song is grating Funny thing about you bringing this, this song up for a worst song ever today You sent it to me and I thought, I have no idea I don't think I've ever heard this song before And then I clicked on it and I'm watching the video on YouTube and the first bar, first verse comes out. And I'm like, don't know this song at all. Never heard this before in my life. And then the chorus starts, had a bad day, stubbed your f***ing toe. And I was like, oh my God, I know this song. And it was so weird. Like the entire song kind of came back to me. I don't know yep. that I've ever intentionally ever listened to this song. But I you must didn't have, have to. I, I didn't have to. I must have been uh, forcibly marinated in it in about 2005 when it was new. The thing is, like I said, people latched on to this song because they're like, oh, I've had a bad day. I like that song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I'm like so obnoxiously positive at times, 
like whenever people ask me, you know, how you doing? I was like, I've never had a bad day in my life. And I kind of mean that like this whole like, oh, you had a bad day. I, you know, I feel I don't subscribe to that mantra at all. So I don't. I don't latch on to this song. I find, you know how to make me have a bad day? Make me listen to the song more than once. Yeah. Now I'm having a bad day, Daniel. <laughs> I can see how with your penchant for positivity, how this song w- would stir up the negative feelings that you have. <laughs> I, I find it... Um, it's like Ritalin. You give Ritalin to somebody who isn't hyperactive and they get all high off of it. Right. But if you give Ritalin to somebody that is hyperactive, it slows them down. Yeah, That's what like, this song is. It's like it's Ritalin like, for me because I'm not having a bad day. It's like the opposite of the Happy Helmet episode of Ren Stimpy. Right? When you you know, have a hammer to bang your head yeah. to make the song go. For me, I would say it was forgettable, except I have never forgotten it, apparently. Because <laughs> I remembered it as soon as I heard the chorus. Yeah. I always thought, this is a pretty innocuous song. This is something I f- don't know why I'm listening to it in over the speaker system at CBS. It sounds like it should be a song that's playing in the background of a romantic comedy from like 2002 or 2005, where Kate Winslet is really staring at the wall because she just broke up with Gerard Butler over some stupid thing. And there's a montage of their life together up to that point as they're going into act number three and whatever is going to happen is going to happen because it sounds exactly like something that should be used in that format only. <laughs> contradicting that or semi-contradicting yes. that, this song really, really got legs over in UK whenever your friends and mine, Coca-Cola, decided to uh, use it in uh, a, a campaign ad. Yeah, so, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, so the UK got marinated in this song. What you were saying before, like whenever you first started listening to it, how it didn't sound familiar to you, is because the song structure of this song is unusual. Right. It's verse and then the chorus, which everybody knows. Yes. And then it hits a bridge and then right. it does the chorus again. And then it does another bridge and then chorus fade, fade till repeat. Yes. There's only one verse in this song, which is why when the song starts out, you're like, I don't know this song. Right. No, that's exactly true. It, the chorus is so obvious. So like I do, I, I do my research on the, uh, on the artist in question because I want to be knowledgeable whenever we do the show. And I listen to an entire album or as, you know, as much of the album as I can tolerate. Right. So uh, Daniel Poder is, uh, he's Canadian. I believe Big he surprise is there. From- yeah, he's, well, he's from that part of Canada. Like, 90% of the people that live in Canada all live in, like, the same very small area compared to the rest of the country. Well, right. he's in the 10%. He's in the 10% that doesn't live in Toronto and Montreal. Right. So he's from British Columbia. Mm-hmm. He was a uh, a violin player, and then he used to get bullied in school, and then he came home one day and, like, was so mad about getting bullied that he, like, picked up his violin and just destroyed it. Started to play the sousaphone. <laughs> no, he decided to learn how to play the piano instead. And I was thinking what you're thinking now. Good thing he didn't start off with the sousaphone because those are <laughs> much harder to break. Or right. a piano for that matter. Right. Exactly. I'm sick of the stupid piano. Oh, oh, oh my God. Oh, it's, it's out of tune already. <laughs> I should have went to the gym. Uh, <laughs> so, And then the rest of the Wikipedia page is hilarious because every time it brings up subs- uh, subsequent songs and albums after Bad Day... They just keep like really ringing the bell saying, 
he failed to live up to the success of Bad Day with his next album. <laughs> yeah, that actually made me laugh as I was reading the article about him. As they, they just kept doing... I don't know who wrote that article, but props to you for giving me a continuous set of increasingly funny laughter. Uh, hard to control laughter. It sounds laughter. like it was written by an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> right? So I went and I listened to the album, self-titled. Uh, the self-titled also album. Also a problem. That- he should that's a guy yeah. with a name like Daniel Powder. He should like he should sit down and think like, all right, I gotta come up with something better than that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so the first song on the album is called Song Six because I don't know. It, it, that's like kind of like 1990s irony that yeah. used to happen. Yep. That doesn't fly in 2005, and it definitely doesn't fly in 23. This whole album is so bland. Yes. It's like it's like a dinner roll with no butter. It's for people that think mayonnaise is too spicy. Mm. You know what I mean? It's I found it very, very just safe. Too safe. How's that? Ah, it's definitely, it falls into the too safe category. I can't argue with you there. And I only listened to this one song, but I'm going to guess the rest oh. of the album, based on your description, is about the same. Yeah. Well, it doesn't sound like Bad Day. Bad Day is definitely an outlier compared to the rest of the album. But it just, I don't know. It's like, are you sure you like music, Daniel? Because it (laughs) it doesn't sound like you're super into it. It's music to be algorithmically stuck into a playlist. That's that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. No, exactly. That's exactly what it is. All right. uh, Before we wrap up the show, Jeff, I do have the answer to my very popular and always well-received question. Right. And certainly... A very straightforward, over-the-plate kind of pitch. Sure. Certainly, there can't be any confusion in this. I'm sure there isn't. What country has the largest amount of fresh water? country with the largest amount of fresh water is Russia. Ooh, excellent guess. And that is uh, second place. Ah, rats. The United States of America is third place. And the country with the largest amount of fresh water is Brazil. Oh, well, I guess that yeah, makes sense with Amazon. Yep. So I was, uh, I was thinking of Lake, Lake, uh, was it Lake Baikur, Baikonal in, in Russia, which is the largest freshwater body of water in the world. Right. Uh, but Brazil has almost double. It's got 82, 33 cubic kilometers of renewable freshwater resources, which accounts for like 12% of the world's total freshwater Located in your friend of mine, Brazil. Uh, All right. Russia, as you uh, your guess, has 4,500 cubic kilometers, and then the United States just over 3,000. Ah, I was so, close. Yeah, Brazil's, yeah, Brazil's got, a, got us beat by quite a bit. Yes. So if you're looking for a nice glass of water, head down to Brazil. Well, you know, in Brazil, the fresh water sometimes contains electric eels, so I'll just stick with ours. Oh, yeah. F*** that. <laughs> so yeah if you're looking for fresh water and people who speak portuguese at ninety thousand miles an hour head on down to brazil home of the electric all right. eels <laughs> all right but that is gonna wrap i freaking hate eels they're disgusting all right that is gonna wrap up this week's episode of twibbly we will see you back here in about seven days exactly seven days exactly good night jeff good night jeff bye everybody bye guys a special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook or Instagram or the hot new social media app that I just made up called Spackler. That's group with two O's and two P's by looking for Twibbly. 
don't forget to like and subscribe. And also, don't sell all your stuff and climb to the top of a mountain waiting for the end of the world. I mean, the numbers add up and all, but we'd never tell you to do that.